There are so many heartbreaking things about this crisis. And so in a way, this is like a marginal concern, like who gives a shit. But one of the things that does make me sad is like, I feel like comedy is going to be one of the hardest hit forms of entertainment and in industries because the audience is such an integral part. Yeah, I mean, it's it's really sad because, you know, a lot of comedy clubs throughout the country were probably struggling a little bit anyway. And I don't know if all of them will come back. And of course, you need people to have disposable income to even come to the show. And, you know, purse strings might be a little tight from for a bit. That's why, uh, again, big fan of the universal basic income. Uh, <laughs> just have a, a little bit of disposable money. Do it for the comics. Yeah. If the alleviation of human misery was not enough, <laughs> like, uh. do it for the comedy club in Tucson. Yeah, do it so they can go to bananas. Pass that fucking universal basic <laughs> income. Recently, I caught up with the phenomenal Michelle Wolf, who's a comedian, TV personality. She performed at the White House Correspondents' Dinner a couple of years back. You might have heard about that. Michelle and I met on the trail. She actually performed with Dave Chappelle for the campaign in Iowa. So Michelle and I became friends, thrilled that she supported my campaign. And we caught up while she was actually staying with Dave Chappelle because she was visiting him when we all went into quarantine. Dave said, hey, Michelle, rather than have to travel public transportation, head back to New York City where you're from, why don't you stay with me? So Michelle has been with Dave Chappelle in Ohio and they've actually been performing comedy in cornfields, which are outdoors and very socially distant. So that's, a, that's an image for the ages. Uh, that, that you have world-class comedians performing in the cornfields of Ohio, but that's happening. And this is my conversation with Michelle Wolf that was recorded a little bit ago, a little bit earlier during the, the COVID lockdown. At the Chappelle household, I'm, I am i can't contribute too much, but every once in a while, I'll try to make a festive salad. Dave was very uh, funny to point out that I did a salad with a carrot ginger dressing, and he goes, your dressing. <laughs> you should totally make branded Michelle Wolf dressing, carrot ginger. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Can we announce that right now? <laughs> yeah, yeah. The Michelle Wolf carrot ginger dressing. Uh, Even when you open the bottle, there's a loud screech. <laughs> So you're at Dave's house uh, because you were performing in the vicinity uh, when we all got locked down. Is that right? Well, I was supposed to do this benefit for a school down here and the benefit got canceled. But Dave's amazing wife, Elaine, was like, stay. I'd rather you be here than in New York. Well, I, I'm sure that where you are is at least a bit more pastoral and natural and refreshing than New York City, because I have friends in New York City right now. And the high point of their day is just yelling out the window at 7 p.m. for the healthcare workers. I mean, this is how bad of a person I am. I was joking around last night that I'm I'm glad we don't live near a hospital because just like 7 o'clock every day, we got to do it. <laughs> I'm just banging pots out in the middle of the country. So Someone can hear you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I, I think you've had such an incredible journey. Not, I, mean, I don't mean like, you know, where you are right now, but... Uh, you know, just the fact that you worked at Bear Stearns and now you're 
this world-class comedian. Like I thought it was like, oh my gosh, like uh, what a transition that is. So what I was most curious about is, were you like a class clown, like entertainer, performer when you were in high school uh, or, or was it something that came to you a little bit later? I was, I mean, I was always kind of like silly and, and weird, but I, like, I mean, I loved SNL and I would like recreate the sketches in school, you know, that Monday or whatever, but I was never really like, I don't know, I was really serious about school, you know, I was nerdy, insufferably nerdy. And um, so it never even occurred to me that comedy was an option. Yeah. So when did you actually just get in front of a bunch of people and perform? Because to me, that first set of experiences must be the most difficult and raw and formative. Yeah, I am. Um, just to know, I started working at Bear Stearns in the summer of 2007. And great timing. <laughs> yeah, perfect timing. Um, it was two weeks after two of their hedge funds collapsed. Um, and then March of 2008, of course, the entire bank uh, collapsed. So, so Michelle, was this your fault? I like to take I like to take some of the blame for it. You know, like even if I didn't do anything, I at least put the energy out there that it could fail. You know, <laughs> you, you showed up and you were like, mortgage-backed securities—that's the future. Yeah. <laughs> Let's overbuild houses. <laughs> well, that's what you get for <laughs> that's what you get for hiring someone with no economic or business experience. <laughs> um. No, so I, I went to a taping of SNL. I've been such a huge fan. I wanted to know how people got started. And it turns out that almost everyone got started with improv. So I signed up for a class. And after my first class, I was just like, oh, I just want to do more of this. Wow. I, I think the first class was like a week after Bear collapsed. Wow. Well, you went from there. You went to another bank. So you had this banker by day, comedian by night lifestyle for a little while? Yeah, you know, we got swallowed up by JP Morgan and I was young and cheap relatively compared to a lot of my bosses. So I, they kept me. We used this Microsoft Access program that I kind of created and I was the only one that knew how to use. So I made myself valuable. That's a good job security tip. Invent some shit that only you can use and then they, they can't get rid of you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I uh, I got to keep my job Why I got to watch everyone over the next year. Every Thursday, people got fired. Wow. I, I think at that point, when, when I was at Bear Stearns, I probably had like five VPs over me and... It was just one of those things where it was like, yeah, there were too many people, you know, like some of them were going to have to go. It was just it sucked seeing people get fired all the time, even the ones I disliked. <laughs> you know, I, I kept the job and then I, I kept trying to do more and more improv, two classes a week and trying to go to as many shows as I could. And yeah, that eventually turned into stand up. That was in like 2011. I started doing stand up. I was trying to do as many mics as I could a night and that's when I was like, oh, I got to find a job that's a little bit more flexible. Like I can't be staying until like 7 p.m. and make it to these mics. I need something that's going to let me out earlier, which is when I ended up getting a different job at a tech company, this research company. It was a biochemistry, computational biochemistry research lab where I was a recruiter because I'm not smart enough to work there in any other capacity. <laughs> you weren't a biocomputational researcher yourself? No, no, no. <laughs> I, I, I could barely remember the pitch of uh, when we were at career fairs. <laughs> <laughs> um, so then you got to do how many open mics a night? 
in the role I took, they were looking for people that had outside interests because essentially I was doing a role that I was overqualified for, but you know, their policy was do your work, do a really good job, and we'll support your alternative activity outside of work. So it's it's literally the perfect job for someone pursuing something like stand-up. So I worked there. I got to leave at like whatever time I needed to to get out as long as I got my work done. And I was doing three mics a night, sometimes four or five, if you could fit them in and, you know, travel to Brooklyn sure. and Queens. Yeah. And, and that's really kind of when things started ramping up. That's also when, um, you know, I think I first got on Twitter in 2012 and I would just sit and I'd write jokes all day while I was at work uh, based off of the news. A lot of them awful. You know, I was just starting out and I had like five followers at the time. So it was no harm, no foul. <laughs> I was one of them, Michelle. No, I wasn't. <laughs> I remember those jokes you were crafting at the So when did you decide to just bank it all on comedy? Because I feel like it's a very big deal to actually go full time. And I know while you're doing these open mics, they were probably paying you in like booze. <laughs> or yeah, literally, you'd either get, well, first of all, sometimes for open mics, you'd have to pay. You'd either have to buy a drink to even do the mic or you'd have to pay like $5. So at this point, I'm not really making any money in stand-up. I think they just want to make you alcoholics in the beginning. Um, and they do a pretty good job. But uh, so the other person that had my job at this company, he ended up leaving to go to medical school. And instead of hiring someone else, they were like, actually, Michelle, we think you can do both jobs. And at that point, I had like more responsibility at work and I was like, this isn't what I signed up for. So I made the conscious decision to try to get fired. But like the company's so good that if I got fired, they'd still pay me severance. But I had to do it in a way that wasn't egregious. So I just did less and less work over time. This seems like some romantic relationships I've been a part of. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> like maybe I can like, make you conclude. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I made them break up with me. But it was actually really hard because I hate... I'm, I'm not the kind of person that likes to like not get stuff done and... It yeah, was just no. like you, you seem like a very hardworking, conscientious, effective person. So being consciously ineffective for months must have been really difficult. It was really hard. I and I hate getting in trouble. These people were nice, you know. The company was yeah. trying to do good things. It was really <laughs> <laughs> like they're trying to they're trying to find cures for like cancers and you know Parkinson's, and there I am just doing less and less work so I can get severance to quit my job. Overall, I'm a pretty bad person. So, um. <laughs> well, well, I mean, what that that story, what that says to me is like people will do what their incentives are. You know what I mean? I mean, clearly, you're not the sort of person that likes to disappoint people. Right. But if you set up a system where that's the rational thing to do, then like a lot of people will do just that. Yeah. I mean, I think I needed to do that. It was kind of my first lesson in that, like, oh, yeah, sometimes you have to disappoint people in order to do the thing you want to do, which I feel like I've done throughout my career pretty well. <laughs> You're like a serial disappointer. It's like, yeah, yeah. It's, it's a time <laughs> to disappoint someone else. So, <laughs> so I, could... I think the, the sooner I realized that not everyone's going to like you, the more free my comedy became. Not to skip ahead, but I feel like the culmination of your freedom was the White House Correspondents Dinner in 2018, where like I, I thought that was the most courageous set I, I think I might have ever seen because you were just really like 
you know, like like you could almost see like the the resistance going up, and you were just like plowing through it like a fireball. It was so awesome and brave, and I thought really profound, really smart. Oh, thanks. Like I think that might have been some of my first exposure to your work, and. I just was blown away by just how free you seemed. Thanks. Yeah. I mean, I knew as soon as I got the call to do the dinner, I knew exactly what I wanted to do. I just wasn't sure if I'd be able to execute it before I even said yes to it. I took a couple days to like try to write the type of jokes that I would want to write. Someday I'll put them out there in some fashion, but you mean the ones that were left off the table? <laughs> the ones that were left off the table were some of them were admittedly just bad jokes, but other ones were like, even like my friend Keith Robinson, he's a comic at the cellar and he um he's known for saying and doing kind of whatever. There was some where he was like, No, I don't I don't think you can do that one. It's <laughs> a very useful friend to have there, Michelle. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but uh right before I started the speech, my friend Mark Norman, who's also a comic and also a big Yang Gang fan. Oh wow, thank you for me. He uh he texted me and he was like, Remember if you're crin- if they're cringing, you're doing well. So I held on to that. And as soon as they started to tighten up, which was almost immediately, I kind of sat in it. And, you know, I'd also had like a, a glass and a half of tequila at this point. So, you know, I was more comfortable sitting in it. But normally, if an audience had been that cringy, you know, of course, any other comedy show, I would have been scrambling to change. But I was really having a lot of fun witnessing their discomfort. Well, that's one reason why I thought it was so awesome. And Mark's advice is so on point because you've been in front of, at this point, hundreds, thousands of crowds. And ordinarily, as soon as something's starting to go south, you course correct. Like I did the same thing on the trail where if I felt I was going down like a road where like, oh, people aren't really feeling that one. Yeah. Any political speech is so close to what comedies like too, you know, like feeding off the crowd and gauging their reactions. And Dave's like annoyingly good at both um, <laughs> serious, engaging speeches. I'm convinced that a comedian should run for high office like president. Like I think Dave should run for president. I think that would be really fun and awesome and effective because I agree with you. The parallels are uncanny. Yeah. I mean, I think he would, I think he'd be perfect for it because the stuff he doesn't know, he'd be the kind of guy that would hire people and put people in his cabinets and stuff that do know what they're talking about. But he would be, I mean, him as a mouthpiece is like, he's going to tell you the truth. He's going to put things in a logical way. And he's also, I, t- I tell him all the time, it's like, like, we'll be at some occasion and he'll pick up the microphone to give a speech. And I'm like, how do you always know how to say exactly the thing that should be said? It's annoying. Uh, Dave's, Dave's probably going to hate us for like being like, Dave for president. I, mean, I think that did they make like a movie about this? Like, you know. um, well, but, I, but I totally agree I mean, with you. I how about to agree you do you. it first and fix a bunch of stuff and then Dave can come in and, and have some fun. Well, one reason why I think someone who's like a straight up truth teller would be great is because so much of our mishandling of these issues is that they bury the common sense and jargon. Like I feel like Bear Stearns was an example where you had 10 layers of bureaucracy being like, oh, this is way too complicated for you to ever understand Joe Q Public or 
you know, Jane regulator or whatever it is. It's like, oh, no, no, don't worry. It's over your head. Meanwhile, they're just doing horseshit and just like covering it up and being like, we're going to call this one, you know, mortgage-backed securities. We're going to call this one collateralized yeah. debt obligation. <laughs> you know, it's like whatever it is. And you know that stuff's going on in government too, where if you had someone like Dave as president and someone tried to pull shit like that, he'd be like, what are you talking about? Someone explain this to me in English. You know, and like the same thing happened with the bailout. It was like, uh-oh, we're going to quantitatively ease. And it's like, what does that mean in English? It's like, we're going to just print trillions of dollars and give it to the banks. I, I mean, I think you actually do a really good job of this too, but it's it's really like, sometimes you just need the logical explanation of what's going on. It might not be what you want to hear, but that doesn't mean it's not going on. I agree. I think that was one of my learnings in politics, where it felt like a lot of the politicians were just waging wars of keywords and symbols and mm -hmm. gestures. And I was like, I think we should give everyone a thousand bucks a month. I think we should yeah. you know, like measure economy by how you're doing and what I'm doing and not how fucking Amazon's doing or whatever, yeah. like, whatever the, 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 the move is. And it felt like I was talking a different language than any of the other people in the race. Yeah, I mean, they're, they're all buzzwords. They're all, not formulaic, uh, crowd tested. What's that word? Focus grouped. Yeah, yeah, focus grouped. Yeah. The quarantine has my brain working at like 2%. <laughs> what is it normally at 10%? But <laughs> <laughs> so now it's, it's less, it's less. But yeah, I mean, like, there's really a refreshing part of you is that you didn't sound focus grouped. You were like, no, these are my plans and my strategies, and this is what it is. Well, thank you. This podcast is sponsored by Helix Sleep. I've always been a mattress guy in that I knew if you're going to spend eight hours doing something, you should probably invest in doing it right. That's why I love Helix Sleep, which will send a mattress to your door that's made just for you. You take the Helix Sleep quiz and you get matched with a mattress based upon whether you want it to be soft, medium, firm, how you sleep, other variables, and then voila, it gets sent to your door and you can try it for up to 100 nights and send it back. They have a 10 plus year warranty because they believe in their product so much. I do too, my kids do too. They actually seek out this mattress even though it was designed not for them. <laughs> That's how good this product is. Helix has been awarded the number one mattress picked by GQ and Wired Magazine. It is even recommended by multiple chiropractors and doctors because they think it'll make you healthier. Don't take my word for it. Helix is offering 20% off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners. Go to helixsleep.com yang and use code helixpartner20. This is their best offer yet and it won't last long. With Helix, better sleep starts now. To rewind back to this, you know, you getting gently eased out of this job and like trying to break in and spending full time in comedy. I felt like that must have been this enormous step. Uh, were your parents or family freaking out at this point? Because you'd been like the excellent student, gotten these cool sounding jobs in New York at like these firms that they've heard of. Yeah, I mean, well, so when I ended up leaving, I had enough saved up. And with the severance that I was getting, I had enough saved up to not work for a year. And comedy is really hard to explain like why you're doing it and how you're doing it to people that don't know it. Like 
saying that like, no, but I'm working really hard. I'm going to like a bunch of mics a night. And they're like, yeah, but are you get- making money? Are you are you doing shows? And it's like, well, not yet, but I'm getting there. And it has to become your life, you know, like you have to kind of live, or at least I did. I had to like live and breathe it and be doing it as much as I possibly could. And I think that's the hardest part to explain to family and friends because they're like, well, you can't make time for me. And I'm like, right now, no, I can't. I have to go after this with all I have. I only have a year. And it's just hard to explain why you don't have time for people. I have no time for you. There are 50 drunken idiots awaiting my wisdom. (laughs) Yeah, at some bar that's like a 10-minute walk from the subway in Brooklyn, you know? (laughs) Like, (laughs) imagine being second tier to that. So what was that year like? And what was it like at the end of the year that you had uh, hit a particular point where um, you felt like it was going to progress and take off? I mean, I was I was terrified and I think I needed to be terrified because I didn't have any net to fall back on. You know, like if I didn't work, I was going to have to find another job. And, you know, I think that kind of would have been the end of the the dream. I started submitting packets for shows. You know, I did a packet for Colbert, the Colbert Report, which was like one of my favorite shows back then. And I towards the end of that year did a packet for late night with Seth Meyers but that show it had didn't even exist yet it was it was when it was first being created um I got fired in January of 2013 and I got hired at late night with Seth in January of 2014 almost exactly a year later that's a big deal so they hired you um as a writer or performer they hired me as a writer but all the writers were there was this agreement that like we would potentially be characters be able to do characters on the show and yeah I mean it was huge it was I still remember I thought I bombed the interview because the interview was only about 10 minutes long from what I knew from being a recruiter you did well if you stayed the whole day so 10 minutes I was like well I didn't get it this is terrible I was so sad and then I just got a call and they hired me and I was like I couldn't believe it Good. That must have been the greatest call ever. Uh, you know, it's like right at the end of your year mark, your like savings are evaporating. You're like thinking, well, what next? It was amazing. I was like, I couldn't, I, I, I remember I was walking down the street and I got the call and it started to rain. And I was like, I was like, this feels like the opposite of what should be happening, but. <laughs> it's like the heavens are crying tears of joy on you. Yeah, <laughs> so like yeah. Somebody's told you, you have a career in comedy now. <laughs> And and working at Seth was, you know, of course he's funny and all that, but he's he was such a great boss, him and Mike Shoemaker, who are the who's the showrunner. And they really just like nurtured all of us as writers and performers. Like you could suggest anything, you know, like you could try anything out. They wanted you to suggest the craziest thing you could. And if they didn't like it, they'd just say no. But like there was no fault in being, you know, suggesting something terrible. And Seth could probably be the first one to tell you that before every good joke I wrote, there was probably 10 really bad ones. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, they had to get out before I could get... I have a theory that your jokes are like stacked up into your throat, like uh, they're just stacked up. So you have to get, you know, you have to get the bad ones out before you can get the good ones. Get rid of all the shitty ones. uh, (laughs) It's like trying to get a Pringle in the middle of the can or something. It's like the one golden Pringle in the can. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) yeah. (laughs) 
one per container. So you're in your mid twenties at this period. It sounds like what was the ratio of men to women at all these like mics you were uh, going to? That was, I mean, there was probably like of the mics. A lot of times there'd be like thirty people there, and maybe five of us were women. And it, it sounds bad what I'm about to say. So let me preface <laughs> sure it that I know fine. it sounds bad. <laughs> but it's kind of one of my arguments when people say like comedy should be 50-50. It's like, I don't disagree with that, but the numbers aren't there. You know, like when I was at Mike's, it was five women to maybe 30 men. And so if that's who's coming up, you're not even going to have a pool of 50-50 to choose from. And it's a lot of this with like women in, in workplaces in general, like you have to be fostering them at a younger level. And then over time, there will be a bigger pool to choose from. And then you can get closer to a 50-50 ratio. Because when I worked at the tech company, it was the same thing. We were constantly looking for women all the time. I personally wasn't too sad that we never hired that many because uh, it meant I had my own bathroom. Um, <laughs> you were like, this woman has some stuff going for her, but I don't know. I don't know. She looks like uh, yeah. a frequent bathroom goer. <laughs> yeah. There were so few of us women working there that we each kind of claimed our own bathroom. Um, but, you know, we also just like, we couldn't get a lot of women to apply. And what we should be focusing on rather than having 50-50 right now is making sure we're letting it be a space where women can be involved so that they can they can train they can learn and then they can get good at it and then they'll be undeniable i'm i'm going to just guess or suppose that so these five or six women that show up and then they're like the 25 to 30 guys uh, i'm just going to guess that things were more difficult for the five or six women that were there in like ways minor and stupid and, and then more important ways. Is that right? Um, I'm not sure. I mean, like, I I don't know if it was just the class of comics that I was around, but like a lot of these guys became my good friends and are still some of my best friends. And they were always just supportive of me. You know, like at every mic that I went to, and I know that the situation isn't necessarily the same for all women. And I think it's actually changed a little bit for the worse. But it was always funny's funny, not funny's not funny. And everyone there was, if you did a good joke, it was a good joke. It didn't matter if you were a man or a woman. And then like any any men that were like, oh, she's a girl, the actual guys who are actually good, who are still the working comics today would be like, shut up, dude, you're not funny. She can do <laughs> it, you can't. You know, like they'd come to your defense. So like, you know, maybe I just got lucky that the, pe- the, the guys around me were kind of good people I mean some of them aren't necessarily good people but they're at least you know they were they were fair it was a meritocracy well they'd they recognize a good joke like regardless of the source yeah uh well I mean that's somewhat encouraging I'm sorry it sounds like it might have gotten worse since then though uh and one of the things I love about comedy and it makes me very sad what's gonna what's happening now with this coronavirus crisis is that no matter how good or successful you are famous or, you know, in your case, you have like a Netflix special and you had like a TV show and everything, but everyone still just goes to the clubs to do the work and get that feedback and get that experience. Like there's no escaping it. Yeah. You know, you could be anyone at any success level. And it's like, well, I just got to go to the clubs and work it out. No matter how good you get, I feel like every once in a while you'll get a gut punch that just reminds you like, yeah, don't slip. You know, like you got to keep working at this. Like the audience is a 
in generally, even if you're really famous, they'll give you like a little bit of a grace period. But after a while, they'll be like, okay, where are the jokes? Where are the jokes? And they kind of keep you on your toes and keep you honest and like, honestly help you get better. Or in your case too, like I can relate to aspects of this. Like you might've told a joke a hundred times, but then you'll still tell it a different time, like the hundred fifth or the 200th time, just because like, you're like, well, I got to try something out with this thing. And then sometimes the experiment doesn't work. Yeah, totally. You know, like anytime you see a joke at a club, you don't know where that comic is with that joke. It still could be in the oven. Yeah. They still bake yeah. that shit. And the harder the difficulty, the more times you might have to say it to get it right. You know, like there's jokes that I think comics say hundreds of times before they're like, that's the funny part. But all those hundreds of times before, they might have been terrible. You know, it might have been a terrible joke with like an offensive punchline. And it's like, all right, I know I was just trying it. I don't know. Sorry. <laughs> so instead of like, I would like comedy audiences when they watch it at a club, instead of thinking, oh, that's offensive. It's like, oh, I just won't laugh. So they know that that way didn't work. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to give them my focus group thumbs down so they can try Yeah. And- a workshop or abandoned. So do you have jokes that you're just like really attached to even though they're not working and you're like, I'm just going to keep on telling this until like I could figure it out? It's, it's like some, <laughs> some like project where you're like resisting giving it up. Yeah. Well, there's some jokes like that, but you have to know at some point it might be like the way you're saying it. You might be missing a line that's kind of like a logic line that you need Or you just might not be in the point in your career where that joke works. Like so much of comedy is like being someone that they like trust with that sort of information. That's interesting. So sometimes you might just have to put a joke on a back burner and come back to it later just because you weren't ready to tell it. Wow. So even now you're just going back to your now at this point vast compendium of jokes that you abandoned for whatever reason. You're like, oh, some of these I can now revive because... I'm cooler now. <laughs> yeah, I mean, essentially, like, um, I after every time I tape a special, I always look back at the jokes that I like couldn't get to work to be like, all right, let me see if I can try this one again. And sometimes they end up working and other times they still fail miserably. And I'm like, all right, back on the shelf. <laughs> <laughs> That's so interesting. So you become a writer on Seth's show. Seth, I mean, I don't know him well, but like I've been on his show and like I met him a couple of times and he seemed like a great, smart, really earnest guy to me. So it doesn't surprise me that he was looking out for his people. So then what happened next? So it, when I when I first started with Seth, I remember we were, we were taping a promo for the show and in between takes, he, he was talking to me and he goes, so you still doing stand up? And I was like, yeah, but once the show actually gets into production, I'll cut back a little. And he goes, oh, please don't. I don't want you to. Is If you can handle both, do both. I don't want you to stop doing stand up just because you're working here. And so I did. I kept doing stand up. I would do stand up every night. I'd work at the show every day. And then at that point, I'm not doing mics anymore. I'm doing shows, but I do shows every night. I got passed at the Comedy Cellar. And then I started working there every night. And just being there and doing sets there made me an exponentially better comic just because the people you're around, the crowds. Because the Comedy Cellar is a sophisticated comedy crowd for the most part. Um, I mean, not all the time, but for the most part. And they expect like a certain level of skill. So like you really kind of have to step up your game. And I definitely credit the seller for making me a a much better comic. And also uh, Esty, the woman who has been booking the seller forever, she uh, 
has given me a million opportunities. And, you know, like Chris Rock would be there and, and she'd go, Chris, go down and watch Michelle. She's really funny. And Trevor came. That's the first time Trevor Noah saw me. She was like, go watch Michelle. She's funny. Like, so she was really kind of always my a cheerleader for me. But so I was doing more and more stand up at Seth uh, while I was working at Seth. And um, eventually I had been at Seth for almost two years. And Trevor had approached me. He Trevor worked at The Daily Show at this point or was worked hosts he's the host of the daily show um yes i've heard of Trevor. He, uh, <laughs> he worked there he worked his way up i'm kidding um, so he's the host of the daily show at this point and he approached me and was like i'd really love if you could come work on my show and also be an on-air uh contributor and you know after some discussions with him i was like i do think that would be a good move um it would get me on screen a lot more it'd be a little bit of a different writing skill you know writing for seth writing jokes for seth is very different than writing jokes for trevor it's not often you can write uh seth could tell a joke that a half black man from south africa could um, <laughs> kind of different um points of view which helped me as a writer too and that was fun to be able to like stretch a different part of my brain but yeah i, I, w- I went over and i started working at the daily show and um so you said something that I think is really interesting. You said, hey, I went from mics to shows. Mm-hmm. Like at, at what point does a comedian get like a slot on the billing? I'm sure after you're like, hey, like now from, uh, you know, Late Night with Seth Meyers and they were like, yeah. ching, <laughs> you know, but, but like. But- so you're never going to get more work than from other comics. Other comics are like, they're the ones who recommend you for things. They'll put you on your shows. And then that's how it st- starts happening first. Uh, comics will they'll be like, Hey, I run a show at this, um, at this bar. Uh, can you do a set on it? And you do that. You do well at the show. Other comics see you, other comics put you on their show. There's a couple like comedy bookers that kind of work this circuits of shows throughout the city and they'll see you at shows. They'll start booking you on these bigger shows. And it's kind of just like a, it's a waterfall effect after a while. But it is really just word of mouth and showing up and like killing. I mean, you have to like continually, you know, like it, when no one knows who you are, you really have to kill. At least for me, I really thought that I had to like try to knock it out of the park every time. So who are some of the comedians that then reached out to you and were like, hey, I really like you. I think you're funny. Like you should join me on the show. You know, there was a lot of people that were just running a lot of bar shows at that time. Uh Joe Liss would put me on his shows. Again, Mark Norman would put me on his shows. This guy, Jared Logan, who is actually out in L.A. now. You know, Dan Soder would recommend me to anyone who would listen. Let's see. Who else? There's this one booker at the time, Jeremy Levenbach. Oh, that's cool. I mean, you still remember them. I mean, I'm sure you'd feel really great about them. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, And a lot of, you know, a lot of them are comics who are still working. And we, you know... All those guys, they're amazingly funny and good dudes and you kind of grow up with them, you know, and it's like it's it's a weird family. But like, like, I definitely miss being on stage right now. But honestly, like just hanging out with the comics is I miss that a lot, too. I mean, luckily I have Dave, but like hanging out with comics and just like talking and because they really become like it becomes this family. Sure. I mean, you're around them like a I, ton. I would say brotherhood, but I don't want people to think it's sexist. It's not sexist. It's <laughs> it's just like, a, you know, it's a family. We definitely need a term for like 
fraternity across genders. It's like brotherhood, sisterhood, like smashed together. Yeah, exactly. Like <laughs> every word like I was thinking of, people right? are going to be like, see, it is a boys club. And I'm like, no, it's not a boys club. It's just, <laughs> it's like a sorority. <laughs> this podcast is sponsored by expressvpn why let big tech companies see everything you're doing online when you can just use expressvpn and then be footloose and fancy free plus you get access to exclusive content by beaming in to another market. What do I mean? Let's say you have Netflix and you missed the show Snowpiercer. By the way, I loved that movie. And you want to watch the TV series, not available in the US on Netflix, but if you beam into the UK or someplace else, then there's Snowpiercer on your Netflix. See how it works? This is a way you can get more from what you're already spending on streamers, plus totally anonymous online, plus you can do it by pushing one button anywhere you are. It's why I love ExpressVPN. It's like a set it and forget it. So be smart. Stop paying full price for streaming services and only getting access to a fraction of their content. Get your money's worth at expressvpn.com yang. Don't forget to use my link at expressvpn.com yang to get an extra three months of ExpressVPN for free. Uh, how did Seth take it when you were like, hey, I think I want to go uh, work for Trevor? I actually, when I told Seth, I actually cried a little bit because I loved being there and he had given me so many opportunities and he was like, you have to go. You have to. That's, it's the next best step for you. I'm so proud of you. I'm so happy for you. I'll miss you a lot, but you have to go. So he was... Awesome. Yeah, I sounds mean, awesome. Again, hands down the best. Yeah. And... And same with Mike Shoemaker. They were so supportive and they're still great people who I, I could reach out to at any time and, and they'd be there and they're, it's nice. The thing that like, I think the thing that sometimes gets misconstrued is that like a lot of the guys out there are trying to help women. I've worked for a lot of men and like everyone that's gotten me something has has been a man, you know, like Hannibal Burris recommended me to Chris Rock to write on the Oscars. Chris is the first guy who introduced me to Dave, you know, like Neil Brennan offered to direct this Snapchat show I did a long time ago. Like, it's really hard for me to say that, like, it's a boys club when it's like, yeah, I just named a lot of dudes, but they were all so helpful and pivotal in my career. Like they they've all shouted my name to anyone who would hear it. I, I don't I don't like that. That's not the you know, that that part of the story doesn't get told. Oh, that's a beautiful part of the story. And you're telling it right now. Uh, and certainly, I think a lot of people appreciate it. Like I know at least a couple of those people, and they seem like that kind of human being. It's like if they see someone who's talented and up and coming, and they can help, they'll help. Yeah, yeah. And, um, you know, I, I know not everyone's good. But, you know, I've had great experiences with them. And, you know, a lot of people are like, is it hard to be a woman in comedy? And I'm like, well, first of all, this is all I've ever been in comedy. So I don't know how it's different. You didn't uh, have that second control group of being like, and now yeah, yeah. Here's, here's Sam Wolf dressed in drag, doing the same yeah, stuff, like in a deep exactly. voice, like the, the Mulan of comedy. <laughs> like, yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, so, and, and also, you know, like I've only been doing stand up 
this is now my ninth year and I've had two specials, several web series, uh, and an unsuccessful television show, you know? So like, I, I can't say it's been harder for me. Obviously everyone has different experiences, but like, I, I can't say it's been hard to be a woman in comedy on my end. Well, you've been very, very successful and you know, I mean, you're immensely talented, like, you know, and brave. I mean, I've seen your work and loved it before we had a chance to meet in person. I mean, uh, one of the things, there are so many heartbreaking things about this crisis. I mean, people are dying, people are losing their jobs, uh, like our entire country is being shaken to its core. And so in a way, this is like a marginal concern, like who gives a shit. But one of the things that does make me sad is like, I feel like comedy is going to be one of the hardest hit forms of entertainment and industries because the audience is such an integral part. And you're at a point now where, you know, you can like broadcast stuff or like put jokes out there and you've got like a big platform. But it makes me really sad thinking about the next generation of comics that are trying to do what you did, like go to the the, the open mics and everything else. Because like, when is the New York comedy scene going to look anything like it used to look? Like, what does that time frame look like? No one knows, but it's certainly not going to be today, tomorrow, next month, uh, maybe not even next year. Yeah, I mean, it's it's really sad because, you know, a lot of comedy clubs throughout the country were probably struggling a little bit anyway. And I don't know if all of them will come back, you know, so there's going to be less clubs to perform at, which means it's going to be more competitive to get weekends at clubs. And that's going to mean less and less people get to kind of go on the road and work out an hour and try new things in front of different audiences. And of course, you need people to have disposable income to even come to the show. And, you know, purse strings might be a little tight from for a bit. That's why, uh, again, big fan of the universal basic income. Uh, <laughs> just to have a, a little bit of disposable money. Do it for the comics. Yeah. If the alleviation <laughs> of human misery was not enough, <laughs> like uh. do it for the comedy club in Tucson. Yeah, do it so they can go to bananas. Pass that fucking universal basic <laughs> um, income. But yeah, and um, I agree with you. It, it is sad. Like, I mean, there's definitely been times in history where like there's been bad things that happen where you see one of the things that drops off is art. Yes. Because it's just, it's hard to do if there's no money or um, free time or, yeah. And that that's just, like, that is very sad. You know, I, I mean, there's certainly going to be a lot of uh, podcasts. I, I heard there's been a real run on podcast mics, um, but, but but it's like a very different thing than someone going through the crucible you went through, because how many freaking sets did you do in person while you were figuring it out? It must have been thousands. Yeah, I mean, like, it's, it, there's nothing that replaces going on the road as a comic, you know, like, doing those weekends at, like, small cities throughout the country, just kind of like, running it into the ground and like throwing stuff at the wall you know you really gotta like oh, I'm using so many turns of phrase uh, <laughs> but there's there's nothing that replaces that <laughs> and as a comic you have to go on the road you have to be able to have those opportunities to get better and there's no replacing that well I, I know you're right because the same thing happened to me on the trail running for president and like you know when I started out there would be the small group of people who would be like, you know, there because they were just curious and no one really was paying much attention. 
it was almost the equivalent of like open mics. My open mic was I showed up to New Hampshire in a Subaru at this uh, <laughs> coffee shop and there was a grand total of one person there. And I was like, hey, you're here to, <laughs> you're here to see Andrew Yang, candidate for president? And they were like, I guess I am. I was like, fantastic. Um, so uh, so it, the, those were like the lumps I took. But you really evolve as a result. Like there is no way that I could have done what I did down the stretch when it's like, hey, you know, here's like an arena full of like thousands of people who are not there to see you. They're there to see Bernie, but whatever. But but at that point, it was like repetition number, you know, like 2000. And so then you have different muscles. You're like a different type of uh, performer, not to say that, you know, politician equals performer, but there's certainly a performative element. Oh, definitely. And, yeah. And there is no way you can get to point B from point A without thousands of live events. And so it is going to be very difficult to replace that for the next generation. Like, I don't think that technology and podcasts and Twitter really can replace it. Yeah, that's why I get kind of I get kind of annoyed when everyone's like, well, the new normal, the new normal. I'm like, no, 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 we shouldn't be settling for this as like a new normal. Like we should look for solutions that allow us to gather and socialize because that's what we should be able to do as creatures. You know, like that's the thing that scares me the most is like when you can't be around people different than you and you can't discuss ideas and have conversations, you become more and more divided. And the idea that that is a, like a real possibility is, is kind of terrifying, I think. You know, it's one reason why I think the role of comedy has really grown is that it seems like it's one of the few ideological meeting grounds in America today where like, you know, you could have someone say something and it doesn't fall neatly into a political camp. Uh, you know, you could have people with different ideas or alignments on like the same stage within 30 seconds of each other. I think comedy's role is actually very important because of what you just said. It's like, how the heck can you have meetings of ideas or thoughts if, uh, you know, we're each in our own little bubble? Yeah, I mean, a lot of people, you know, I think because of the Correspondence Center, people think I'm like a, a crazy bleeding heart liberal. And I'm definitely a liberal, but like, I think to do your best in comedy, you kind of have to live in the gray. You have to be able to see everything at their face value. And then, cause there's plenty of times when I'm like, I'm like, the right's not wrong on this, you know? Like, and you kind of have to let your ideological values kind of like go away for a little bit in order to see that. And then to maybe put it in a joke form to point it out to the rest of the world. <laughs> Maybe you could point it out right in front of the president and their gang. Yeah. Or like whatever, whatever. Um, so what was your reaction to the firestorm after the correspondence dinner that you probably knew was coming? You're like, if I do my job, there will, there will be this like, you know, firestorm. I mean, some of it struck me as, as bullshit. Like, the, like some of the stuff where it was like, oh, she was somehow like, you know, anti-woman or um you know like i thought i was like that that seems like a very strange reading <laughs> but yeah but but what was your reaction afterwards i was well, first of all i was i was pretty shocked that they thought i made fun of sarah's looks because literally two days before the dinner i had a i had some looks based jokes in there for kellyanne and um i took them out because one of my friends who read it was like i think you should take out the jokes about looks because i i have a feeling that's what the media will make it about 
And I was like, you know, that's a good call. I was sad because I really loved the joke, but it was a good call. And um, I was like, you're right. Let's do that. I took out the joke. And then I was like, wait, but I, <laughs> you're still going to get mad at looks. I should have told the joke. I really wanted to tell. Um, <laughs> at least I could have earned it. I could have uh, yeah. earned it. <laughs> at least get mad at me for the right reason, you know? But that's when I was like, oh, the media is even more like complicit than I thought they were, you know, like when like uh, I think it was like Andrea Mitchell and Maggie Haberman and Mika, whatever her last Brzezinski. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> she uh, when they they specifically, you know, got mad at me and I was like, oh, you guys either are willfully ignorant or you're trying to maintain some sort of access that you have. And I tended to believe it was the latter because I don't think any of them are stupid enough to actually think that that was a looks-based joke. But again, as soon as the headline's written, that's the, it doesn't matter what the truth is. As soon as that headline's out there, that's what people believe. One of the funniest things is that my manager, he got all the headlines from, cause I was on like every newspaper the next day, which was a, big shock to me i didn't i knew i knew what i was doing i just didn't know it would blow up as big as it did i, I had similar experiences but continue <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so i'm on i i my manager took all the headlines and he framed all the good ones and then next to it he framed all the bad ones <laughs> So it's this great picture that has all the good headlines right next to all the bad headlines. And it's just so hilarious how it can be taken in two completely different ways. Of course, people were going to say negative things. Um, that to me was a good thing like that, honestly, as it made me a more confident stand up. The fact that I was like, yeah, you know what? You're going to do stuff that people are going to hate, but I'd rather some people hate me and some people love me than a lot of people just feel uh, about me. And yeah, I mean, as, as like an artist, like if you try and avoid ever pissing anyone off, then like that's a very, very narrow lane. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're going to get... Uh, you're going to get boxed in and it's not going to be, at least for me, it wouldn't be that much fun. But, you know, maybe I also just like stepping on toes a little bit. Um, but the thing that really like, like warmed my heart was the fact that all of these comics came to my defense. Like everyone, even people that like maybe don't necessarily like me came to my defense, you know, like everyone was there, like, and people I'd never met before, but always held in such high regard. Like Letterman said great things about me. Dave said great things. And this is before I even really knew Dave, like just people that I've always loved and held in such high regard. And then also comics at my level, comics below me, all these comics came to my defense. And I was like, that's, that's kind of the beauty of the comedy community. Like as long as you're telling jokes, like, they should have your back. That's really beautiful. That is the community. Uh, and that must have felt great because people who you hold in really high esteem and, you know, admire, like, the, they're like, oh, look, they, like, know who I am and they approved of my work. <laughs> that, that really would be all you yeah. needed. Yeah, it was crazy. Like, I mean, I've never met David Letterman. I've, I, I mean, I watched his show growing up and, like, I never got to do stand up on his show because I just wasn't ready when he was still on the air. But I would have loved to. But then the fact that he saw it and liked it and said nice things about me, yeah, it's really cool. It was really cool for someone who never got the opportunity to meet him before. 
Yeah, that would feel really good. Uh, and you do deserve it. I mean, I, when I saw it, I was like, this was really funny, brave, excellent, like, and as someone who's like been in environments where like, you kind of know which way the crowd's going. I just like admired your your fortitude, your like just guts. It was so awesome. Oh, thanks. Yeah, yeah. I, I had a, I mean, I had a great time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Plus the, you know, the tequila um, helped too. Yeah. <laughs> so what do you have uh, next? Because I know someone like you is like always working, always creating. What are you working on that, that we can look forward to? Um, I have a new special that I'm ready to tape almost as soon as we get out of this. I, uh, my last special came out in December of last year. And then this one, I was able to write it in like a month and I'm really excited about it. It's kind of, it's kind of all about one topic. Is that topic uh, universal basic income? <laughs> <laughs> it is. Uh, <laughs> I use all your talking points. Um, <laughs> um, but did you, did you notice that like everyone kind of stole, like not stole, but uh, took all your ideas uh after you got out of the race and kind of peppered them into their own. You know, I, I did see some of that and I just took it as flattery, uh, you know, <laughs> where, where it's like, yeah. I, I think I said at one point, it's like, I'm either going to win or the other candidates are going to sound like me by the end. And so the fact that the idea is stuck, you know, made me happy and proud because, you know, I just wanted to see the solutions get across the finish line and if other people are talking about them. And, you know, I don't know if you got your stimulus, but like millions of Americans, you probably made way too much, but like... (laughs) I didn't even apply. (laughs) But but millions of Americans got this check in the mail and, uh, you know, like I have a feeling that this is here to stay. So certainly would never wish this crisis. But uh, yeah, I did notice that it seems like a lot of the campaign's ideas have borne fruit and I'm grateful to everyone who supported the campaign, including you and Dave, obviously, and others, because I feel like we did our country a great service. We like advanced really big, important ideas right in the nick of time. Yeah, you really, um, it was very forward thinking. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. I've got this, this new stand-up set that I want to do. And then I'm also writing a couple things. I have a a mini series that I'm working on that I'm really excited about and a couple other potential projects that who knows if they'll get off the ground or not, but um, they're things that are exciting and fun for me to do. So, but you know, stand up is always hopefully going to be my backbone because it's the thing I love to do the most. No, one of the things we have to make sure happens that stand up continues to 
exist and comes back. And I'm just imagining what it would take. A, a lot of it, frankly, is just going to be whether we have the right testing so that people don't have confidence. Like imagine if, if you if you went to a comedy club and you knew everyone in that club had been tested and is negative and you're fine, then you're fine. You can relax. If you don't yeah. know that, then it's going to be really, really hard because you're going to be like, oh, no, like someone's breathing in my direction. You know, that's not exactly like a humorous environment. Yeah, especially like, I mean, the tables are close together. You know, you might be sitting with someone you don't know and, you know, you're laughing. So stuff's potentially coming out of your mouth. You know, like it's a it's a Petri dish for uh, <laughs> sharing a uh, airborne disease like that. But I really hope that we can figure out a way to do live events that people are comfortable. I do think testing is the big thing. I, I think also the move is going to be, you know, smaller venues, not huge crowd size. You know, like I don't think we're going to see arena shows for a little bit for quite a bit longer yep. than we'll see smaller venue shows. But that's totally fine with me because I'd rather play a club than a, a big space any day. Not that you know, I was what, like playing a ton of big spaces, but you were playing some big spaces. I mean, you know, it's like I, I saw you in like yeah. <laughs> arena. Um, you know, one of the things, and and this is like something that is very practical, and I'd have to ask you. So imagine you're performing a set in a club, but the club has these like markers on the floor where like each person has you know, six feet around them. And instead of it being a packed intimate vibe where people are on top of each other and like drinking, it's like the equivalent of like 40% full. Like, how yeah. does that sound to you? Because that might unfortunately be like the the reality. And I know as someone who's, you know, spoken in front of gatherings, ordinarily speaking in front of a mostly empty venue is not <laughs> like a positive thing for like your like energy or performance or feedback but that is like a an approach like how much would that impact uh you and other comics if like you were performing to essentially like a third full clubs i mean it definitely would hurt your paycheck for sure but then also you're gonna have to get used to laugh sounding different you know because like part of the beauty of a comedy club is that you're all packed together and it's almost a contagious environment where you can, I mean, and maybe literally, um, where you can get the laughs rolling and kind of like people feel more comfortable to laugh when they see other people laugh. So it's like it, it creates a, an energy and, and um, an uproar. But if you're that far apart, you're really just going to have to get used to things sounding different and being like, okay, that joke worked, even though the laugh seems about a third of what it normally would. Yeah, that, I mean, that's true. Th these are some of the things that we're going to have to be looking at in the, the days ahead, especially for, again, for, for people who are trying to be like you, frankly, because, you know, you've achieved enough success where you have projects that aren't as dependent upon that economically. But you know, I, I am thinking about how we can start to bring back every type of institution uh, from comedy clubs to schools to places of employment to restaurants, because so many people's careers and livelihoods depend upon us eventually figuring out how people can have the confidence to come out and enjoy themselves. Yeah, I um, I, I definitely like I agree that everyone should stay home. But I also am like, what are we doing psychologically to people? the fear of being in a crowd, a fear of being near people. It's like, how do you repair that damage? How do you... How do you repair that damage? Yeah, like, what do you... And, and then it's also like, 
okay, we maybe we get a vaccine, we get enough tests, everyone kind of either knows or if you, um, you know, if you get it, there's an, an, an easy cure, you know, drinking Lysol perhaps. Um, <laughs> but uh, even after that's happened, like, are people going to be comfortable being that close anymore it's it's yeah it's going to be a long road back and like the the new world probably does not look like what we've been accustomed to throughout your life and my life like 2019 2022 is not going to look like 2019 in terms of people's attitudes of getting together even if we do have some of the vaccines and tests that we need and i agree with you too that stay at home flying the curve yes 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 but we do have to start evaluating how we reopen targeted parts of our economy before we have a vaccine because a vaccine could be 18 months away or more and mm-hmm. it's not realistic to say to everyone like well we're going to be in the, for that time frame if you look at other countries some of them are starting to try and reopen um, there are choices because if you reopen too fast like you could cause a, a resurgence but but these are the questions we have to grapple with you just can't take one extreme or the other Certainly the people who are like, open everything. I mean, no, that that's super stupid and deadly. But also it's like, everyone stay home forever. Like that's not really an, an answer right. <laughs> either. Like, we're, you know, we're going to, uh, we're going to have to peek our heads out sometime. I, I do want the world to, I mean, maybe like overall be safer, but like, I do hope people are striving to make it look like it used to in terms of like gatherings and things like that. Like, I hope there's people smart enough working on stuff that can allow for the technology that and like medical advancements that we can get back to the lives we knew. Well, there's something fundamental about a concert, a rally, a gathering, like a night out. I agree with you that if you lose that, it's something very human where there's just something really important and profound about us being able to get together in that kind of setting. And I agree with you. That's what we should be aspiring for. Hopefully we'll get there, you know, before too long passes. And I think our culture is changing through this, but, you know, uh, hopefully we can make it change in some ways that are are positive. I I mean, I'm deeply concerned about some of the damage that we're wreaking on people's lives, but you and I are going to be some of the people that help bring people back. And I don't know about you, Michelle, maybe you, you feel this, but like, I feel this responsibility to put good stuff out there because, you know, people just need more good stuff out there. Yeah. I mean, like I'm, I keep sharing, you know, video clips of old stand up and things like that. And I, I, it's a weird situation to be in where it's like, I don't want to do stand up on, you know, Instagram or anything like that. Cause it's not the right way to do stand up. But yeah, I mean, I think keeping people entertained and and positive and distracted (laughs) is kind (laughs) of great. (laughs) Yeah, we all have our roles to play. And certainly, you know, we just have to do all we can. But thank you for taking this time. You know, I hope you stay safe there. Please say hey to Dave and Elaine and the family. I will. You know I was supposed to visit. I had the flights booked and the whole thing, and then we all got sent home on lockdown. Like I, I, oh, I didn't, no. I didn't bother showing Dave like the tickets uh, to Ohio. Just be like proof, but you yeah. should know that. Like, <laughs> though, I, I guess it's the case that if I was able to go there, you probably would not have been there. So it's not like I would have been visiting you anyway. Yeah, we probably would have been, but you might have gotten to stay in this beautiful guest cottage. <laughs> I might have been in that casa, the casa de Michelle. They should name that yeah. house after you. <laughs> 